Our Old Testament reading today comes from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 44, verses 5 through 8. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I shall tell you concerning all the statutes of the temple of the Lord and all its laws. And mark well the entrance to the temple and all the exits from the sanctuary. And say to the rebellious house, to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, enough of your abominations in admitting foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and flesh, to be in my sanctuary, profaning my temple, when you offer me my food, the fat and the blood. You have broken the covenant in addition to your, all your abominations, and you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep my charge for you in my sanctuary." Thank you, Stacy. We are moving through our series. Um, we're probably better than halfway through our series in First Peter. And if you have been able to sort of track with us, and you've either been present or you've watched online most of our um, sermons in this series, we've entitled Resident Aliens of Church in Exile, uh, Peter is focusing a whole lot on suffering. And I don't know how many different ways you can slice that loaf, but I guess there's a lot to be said about suffering. There's spiritual suffering, emotional suffering, physical suffering. There's the suffering that comes from persecution as, uh, for your faith. And Peter sees suffering as a hugely important topic for the development of Christian character, of growth in, in godly um, Christ-likeness and holiness and righteousness. So... Uh, sometimes we would be done with a topic sooner than the writers of Scripture would be done. And so one of the things about preaching through a book of the Bible is we follow along. We don't, uh, we don't preach our pet doctrines. We let the Word of God lead us where it will. And sometimes that's in really exciting stuff, and sometimes it's kind of in ho-hum stuff that maybe doesn't really fire us up, but we need to know nonetheless. And Sometimes it's about topics we would like not to spend too much time talking about. But uh, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6 is our text this morning. Um, we've got two chapters left. 1 Peter only has five chapters. This is the beginning of chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This is the word of God. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Father, now open our understanding that we might understand the depth and complexities of Scripture, even the things which are hard to understand. Let your spirit guide and lead us this morning and convict us and convince us of its truth and leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name we pray, 
Amen. Well, a genocide of Nigeria's Christians is going on right now and has been for some years. On January 30th of last year, Christian Solidarity International issued a genocide warning for Nigeria. The conditions, quote, the conditions for genocide exist in Nigeria, with Christians being particularly vulnerable. CSI's John Eibner announced the increasingly violent attacks and the failure of the Nigerian government to prevent them and punish the perpetrators are alarming. CSI therefore calls on the permanent members of the UN Security Council to take swift action to uphold this commitment to genocide prevention in Nigeria. It is a shocking way to start a sermon, I suppose, to talk about genocide, but we are talking about the topic of Christian suffering and I guess it would be wrong simply to see suffering through our Western comfortable lenses because most of the suffering we experience is not related to intense persecution resulting in the possible death as a result of martyrdom. But there are Christians in the world who die for their faith even right now. Um... Nina Shea, the director of the Hudson Institute Center for Religious Freedom, says that more Christians have been targeted and slaughtered by extremists in Nigeria in recent years than the entire Middle East in the last decade. And most of the deaths are perpetrated by Boko Haram or Nigeria's Fulani tribe, which the president of Nigeria belongs to, the Fulani tribe have killed about 17,000 since 2010, making the total number exceed 50,000 people. It's sort of a slow-moving genocide, and it gets almost no coverage in the media. I suppose if these were COVID deaths, they would be on the front page, but because people are dying for Jesus, no one cares. Not to downplay COVID deaths, I'm just saying, because people are dying for Jesus, the media doesn't seem to care. But we as the people of God, as Christians, we should pay attention. We should care about oppression. I think in America, we might be preoccupied with a certain kind of oppression in social justice without really considering the fact that there are actual Christians dying in the world that no one seems to give much credence or pay much attention to. And I mention this because it's a reality check for us who live in sort of the safe and comfortable Western world. It puts our faith in clearer perspective when we consider the fact that Christians die for their faith. And they have all throughout church history. And it puts the cost of discipleship in context. <clears throat> and what's so interesting about that is Jesus' own words to early would-be disciples was, when they said, I want to follow you, he said, you might want to think again. That wouldn't be the message we would give people today, would it? We, we would say, come on, you know, it's great, the water's fine, right? We tend to, because we want people to come this way, we tend to pretty up the picture. But Jesus said, if anyone would follow me 
or be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. That is not the best marketing language for a new religion getting off the ground. And so Jesus was sober in his assessment about discipleship, and we should be also. I can't help but to think that one of the reasons there may be a falling away today, and I've mentioned this in the past, is part of what Christianity has been, or the faith or the gospel, or Jesus has been sold, the sort of bill of goods sold to people, has been sort of a smokescreen, at least for some. I don't think real, genuine Christians believe that the the faith is an easy thing. It's a hard thing. There is much joy, though, in our faith. It's not all dreariness and sadness. There is incredible joy that we experience through suffering. But it puts the cost of discipleship in context. And what we may not realize about intense suffering, so maybe suffering exists on a scale, you know, from minor suffering or lightweight suffering or to to really intense, brutal, horrific suffering, is that it can have the additional benefit of purging us of sin. We're talking about redeeming suffering. What What are the good things about suffering? We may not think of, maybe we think of suffering as something we have to endure, but we don't think of it as having any positive effects on it. And I want to say just the opposite, that from the perspective of the gospel, from the perspective of the Apostle Peter, suffering is incredibly important for your faith. Suffering has an incredible positive effect on your walk and relationship with the Lord. And suffering has the additional benefit of purging us of our sins. Look at what Peter says. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The apostle Peter is encouraging us to see suffering as an instrument of God's sanctifying grace. Because when believers are willing to suffer, the nerve center of sin is severed. Now, why is that? Why does suffering in the lives of Christians target and eliminate sin patterns? Well, the answer lies in the fact that the only way to get through suffering is to surrender to God's will. Some of you have endured suffering, haven't you? You've experienced suffering. You've come through and now are on the other side of intense trials and tribulations. And I suspect that many of you also have the testimony that while you were going through what you went through, or maybe even right now where you were going through some grievous trial, some fierce tribulation, it is only by surrendering to the will of God that you can have the strength to get through it. And so when you surrender to God's will, and seek his strength to get you through it, what happens is you abandon living for yourself because you realize the only way you're going to get through it is to hold 
on tightly to God. Because you have no choice. And so suffering molds us, it sort of shapes us, it fashions us into the likeness and image of Christ. And so suffering is important. And suffering is something we should lean into, not run from, even though that's our natural reaction. That sort of natural default in every one of us is to avoid suffering as much as we can, and we get that. Nobody wants to suffer, but when it comes, when we realize it's inevitable, usually when you're in the middle of some type of trial, you ought to lean into it, not for its own sake, but for what God is doing through it. Because it is a means, one of the means of God's grace to purge us of sin. It molds us, it shapes us, and so suffering forces us to live not just for your own pleasures, but for the glory of God. I always feel like people who don't suffer at all are terrible people. You know? Um, you know, you think of like the snotty-nosed, you know, brat kid who, you know, is, you know, spoiled, like, like terribly spoiled, right? They're like, they're bad little people, you know? Right? And so sometimes it's good for them to know, no, you can't have this. No, you can't have that. No, you need to share. You need to say sorry. That's good for them. That little sort of microcosmic suffering is good for their character. And when they don't have that, they sort of grow up in this, you know, in this environment where they do not appreciate the hardships of life. And when you are exposed to life's hardships, it shapes your character. It molds you. And when we, as the people of God, are willing to suffer, it forces us to live not just for our own pleasures, but for the glory of God and for the will of God. And when you live for the will of God, that reorients the meaning of life. It's a big question, right? What's the meaning of life? We all want to know the meaning of life. Well, in a postmodern world like ours, there are many meanings of life, I suppose. But for those who believe in Jesus, there is meaning to this life that God wants to impart to us, and some of that is only available to us through suffering. Suffering does give our lives meaning because we value the good things in our life in a new and different light. Maribel and I just moved into a house and, um, uh, in Crestwood. And two years ago, we bought a house in, I don't know, kind of like the Overland area. And um, tiny little house. We wanted to live beneath our means, sort of stay within our budget. So we bought this tiny little crackerjack box of a house. And it was a blessing to us, but it was really, really small. It had no garage. We had to try to put everything in one of those 100-year-old basements where the ceiling is about an inch above my head. And I'm not a tall guy. And... Uh, um, and, and it was an old house, and so, you know, 900 square feet distilled above, distilled over, you know, over two stories, which means but we're dealing about 450 square feet per, per floor, right? And we made, we made a go of it. It was, Mar was Maribel and I and our youngest daughter, Naomi, who still lives with us, and we've been, we've been there for the past two years, and we've been grateful, but our hearts longed for more. And, you know, we, there, were, there were times where we were like, this is a great little house. And then there are times where we're like, we can't stay here. 
And we started to pray. And at first I felt, you know, Lord, am I being like covetous to like want something bigger or better? You know, I don't want a mansion, but like, you know, I just, I, I, we couldn't entertain people. Maribel loves to have people over for Thanksgiving, the family, and we just couldn't. You know, I mean, we're like you know, walking by each other in the hallways like this. <clears throat> so the Lord made a way and blessed us. It's a seller's market. We sold our home. We've just bought a place. And the place isn't huge, but it's bigger. And it has a finished basement and a backyard and a garage. Something that the house we were in really didn't have much of. A finished basement. And I said to Maribel the other day, or she said to me, as we were unpacking, because we just moved in on Tuesday, we both said, and as, as we said it, we acknowledged, we would not in, be enjoying this new place if we weren't in that other place for two years. And she said, that's exactly right. It's not, I mean, it's, there's nothing, there's nothing, if you drive by there, nothing, no big deal. It's a 1,300 square foot home with a semi-finished basement. It's, it's, nothing, it's nothing magical or amazing, but for us, it's like we just, we just came into the promised land. Because for the last two years, our hearts have suffered through the constraints of a tiny home where we couldn't entertain people, and there was a, a sadness and a, a sadness there for two years. And so we realized the hand of God over the last two years preparing the soil of our hearts to receive this new chapter. And suffering functions in your life that way. You experience things that grieve your heart, that sadden you, that make you cry, that anguish and pain your soul so that you can see almost everything else, all of God's other blessings in the proper perspective. Because you have that contrast of hardship and blessing, of trial and deliverance. And that is the beauty of suffering because it puts in perspective God's goodness and it also helps us to surrender to a will that is sovereign over our own will. It's hard to surrender your will, and that's something that has to happen in suffering for you to get through it, but it's also the best thing for you, to surrender your will to the will of one who is all-wise, all-knowing, all-sovereign, holy and good. And even Jesus had to do this, Hebrews 5.8. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. Jesus himself had to suffer. As truly a man, he had to endure the hardships of life. He himself had to be molded and shaped by suffering. I I mean, I thought about, I don't know why I thought about it this morning, I thought about the fact that that Mary and Joseph were not exempted from having to travel 70 miles south from Galilee to Bethlehem to pay taxes. And then when they got there, they slept on the floor of a barn. Maribel, right now, our mattress is on the floor because I haven't put the, the frame together. And I thought about that this morning, that Jesus' own parents were not carried on a chariot 70 miles south. I can imagine Joseph with Mary on a donkey, and he was probably twice her age, and his feet hurt as they walked 
through the countryside and the hills of Judea and Samaria. And then when they got there thinking, I don't know if Mary thought, I don't deserve this. I don't know what she thought. You know? Why, why, do, why do my cousins or my neighbors get to, you know, live a better life than me? I say that because we can think that. We can sort of covet the lives of other people. And did you know comparing yourself with others is not wise? It's not wise to do that because you don't know where anyone else is. But God is at work in us through suffering and we are learning obedience like Jesus through the things that we suffer. This is why I say like people who don't suffer, that's, that's bad, that's not a good thing, it's a bad thing. Because they are not being shaped and formed through the crucible of hardship and tribulations. Here's something to think about. Because you can't control suffering and you ultimately have to submit to the will of God to get you through it, it teaches you to submit to the will of God in other areas of your life, especially your sins. Suffering forces you to break with sin. And this is why Peter makes that statement. A willingness to suffer proves your faith and can bring a scrutinizing light on your sins such that you abandon them. And this is important for those of us who maybe have a hyper-grace or a cheap-grace theology. Because no matter how much we revel in the grace of God, we absolutely ought to examine ourselves, especially when we experience suffering. And not because God wants to condemn us for not being perfect, but because God wants that self-examination to help us to recognize things in our lives that do not conform to God's holiness. You want to recruit God's help, his mercy. The last thing you want to do is go jump in some habitual abominable sin when you want God's deliverance, when you want God's help. You want to, you want to jettison those things when you're suffering. You want to get rid of those things. You want to purge your life of those things. And this is why Peter says, he who has suffered in the flesh is ceased from sin. Now, some people think that applies specifically to Jesus. It's actually sort of a cryptic reference to Jesus having suffered in the flesh. But I think that the other interpretation is better, which is that all of God's people who suffer in the flesh, who truly suffer and are willing to suffer and lean in to suffer, find that... Sin habits are purged through our suffering. Suffering brings a scrutinizing light on our sins. And if you're going through a trial right now, I suspect that you have the testimony that it has kept you close to God. I mean something really grievous, something really painful. Is that true for anyone? that it's kept you close to God? I know that that's true for me when I go through things. It's kept you praying. It's kept you attuned to God's will. And in turn, it has filled you with incredible meaning as you see God at work in your own heart and in your own life. If we would be done with suffering before it completes its work in us, we would find that our lives have far less meaning, not more. Suffering has to complete its work in us in God's own time. 
painful as it is. Look, look at what Peter says in verse 2. I'll, I'll go back to verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. There is this connection again between the willingness to suffer and the connection to the will of God. Live no longer for your own passions, your own lusts, your own appetites, but live for the will of God, to seek the will of God, to pursue the will of God and let the will of God have its way with you. Now, I don't know what anyone's prayer life here looks like, but I do know that it's good to pray if you don't, Lord, let your will be done in my life. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you pray that daily? Lord, let your will be done in my life. I wonder if some of us are afraid to pray that. If we're afraid to actually say, your will be done. As if God is some, I don't know, capricious genie or something. You know, and really when you say that, God says, oh, I'm going to get you now. You could have escaped it if you prayed something different, but now, now, I mean, that's not, right? That's not the God of Scripture, but maybe we think that. Or maybe we're afraid to pray God, your will be done. But I want to encourage you to pray that every day because when God's will is done in your life, you are happier, even if you suffer. And one of the things you ought to follow that prayer request up with is another prayer, Lord, and when your will is done, open my eyes to be able to see it and rejoice. God, have your way and your will in my life, and when it's done, I only ask this, that I can see it and recognize it and rejoice over it. Do you trust God this morning with your life? Do you trust him? Do you believe he's absolutely sovereign but absolutely loving? And those two things have to be joined together. God has to be both for you to entrust your life to him and to embrace suffering. That God is absolutely sovereign but he absolutely loves you. Those two things together, those two realities about the character and nature of God ought to encourage you and make you willing to say, Lord, you can have my life. I don't surrender my life to God who's totally sovereign and then worry that he's gonna thrash me out of some sort of malevolence. I surrender my life to God because I know he loves me. And just like a father, I do things to my kids that may hurt them in the moment, but over the long run, it's better for them. They may not be able to see it while they're experiencing it, but I love them and I see things they don't see because I'm older, I'm wiser. Well, imagine God, infinitely more so, able to see your life from start to finish from a heavenly, eternal perspective. He knows what you need. And he knows what you don't need. He knows just the right amount of suffering to keep you close to him without destroying you. That should be a prayer. Lord, bless us all with just enough suffering to keep us close. Not too much suffering, not more suffering than we need, want, or you know, should have, but just enough suffering. That's my prayer. That's my prayer for all of you. Someone's like, 
shucks. Stop praying that. But that's my prayer for my own children. Father, give my children just enough suffering to keep them relying on you, close to you, needing you, praying to you, seeking your strength. Don't give them too much, but give them just enough. Don't give them a worry-free life. Don't give them a care-free existence. Give them a life where they will discover your will, your grace, your mercy through their daily, monthly, weekly, yearly trials and tribulations. And sometimes that may include some fierce experiences, some painful experiences. Through it all, we surrender our wills to the will of God. Herman Melville said, if we obey God, we must disobey ourselves. And it is in disobeying ourselves wherein the hardness of obeying God consists. Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane had to confront his own human will, right? Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we have to pray that every day too. Our will would have us escape the things that actually are most important in our lives because they look scary. We have to disobey ourselves to obey God. The constant daily dying and taking up your cross that Jesus spoke of was a constant confrontation of your own sinful will. And yes, Christians still have sinful wills because we have not been perfected yet. We still wrestle with sin. We still wrestle with rebelling against God. And so every single day we need God's renewed mercy to overcome those impulses in us to do what we want to do. But when you surrender to the will of God over time, to his will, your will and God's will, which are really far apart, start to get closer together. You want God's will done. You start to pray the things that are close to God's heart. And when we went through our series on prayer last year, one of the things we talked about is the kind of prayers that God answers quickly, and those are the prayers that are closest to his heart. The things that God longs for and God desires for us. I hope you're praying people this morning. So God breaks our sinful will through suffering, and that's why it's so valuable. Through it, you're trained in righteousness and holiness. And this may be, not to beleaguer the point here, but this may be why it's hard, Jesus says, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not because rich people don't suffer, but because they can match their suffering with enough distractions and enjoyments that they don't rely on God for their rescue. I mean, being wealthy doesn't prevent you from experiencing hardships in life. But it means that you have enough money to match those hardships with distractions, enjoyments. You can sort of buy your way out of suffering by doing everything else in a way that others can't. So the rich who are believers have to be especially wary to that kind of temptation to escape suffering, to be done with suffering, to buy their way out of suffering. Living for God is a break, means breaking with 
those habits, breaking with those things that would distract us, breaking with our sin, and breaking with the past. The things that we once used to do for enjoyment, for pleasure. Some of those things, not all, some of those things we have to break with. Look at what he says in verse 3. For you have spent time and enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Living in debauchery. That's not a word anyone uses today anymore. Debauchery. Lust, drunkenness, orgies. And by orgies, Paul, Peter is thinking about drinking orgies, which is essentially people getting together and drinking till they're passed out. That's really what he means, although there's another meaning to that word as well, but that's what he's talking about because the word before it, drunkenness, is there. Carousing and detestable idolatry. He says, look, you've spent enough time doing that. You've had your fill of that. And even for those of us who have grown up as Christians, we've had our fill of that, haven't we? We don't live perfect lives. What Peter wants us to see is as he moves from suffering to holiness, from suffering to breaking with sin, he wants us to see that there is a vivid contrast between the people of God and the people in the world. He calls them pagans. Pagan just means anyone who doesn't worship the triune God of Scripture, right? Heathen, pagan. Paul uses the word Gentiles. Gentiles mean, meant all non-Jews, but as a Christian, it becomes a metaphor for anyone who doesn't believe in the God of Scripture. So a vivid contrast, because those who have suffered, those who have surrendered to the will of God, those who have sort of quarantined their sin, if I can use that, you know, sort of purge their life and are purging their life of sin habits, there's a contrast and what's important for us is to recognize that we are not different than our neighbors in every way, right? We like to go out to a nice restaurant just like them. We, we go to work just like them. You know, we, we buy homes, we raise families, we go to the grocery store. But on this point, we're different. On this point, there is a contrast because the God we serve is holy, our lives are a contrast to the culture around us. And that does draw attention to us, doesn't it? The increasing scrutiny that Christians and Christian churches have now in our culture is, uh, isn't a mistake. It's something that has been around for a long time. I mean, look at what Peter says in verse 4. With respect to this, their debauched living, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they'll malign you. They'll make fun of you. But they'll give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Some of you know Chuck Colson, remember him. I think Chuck Colson died, what, five, six years ago, maybe. I don't know how long it's been. But Chuck Colson was famous in the 1970s for his role in the Watergate scandal as a close associate of Richard Nixon. And he was converted right in the middle of the Watergate proceedings. And the press greeted his born-again conversion with malign and scorn. Newspapers all throughout the country um, and cartoonists had a field day picturing a cover-up by this saint. Sort of, you know, on one side of the cartoon is, you know, people rummaging through the files, you know, um, 
and you know, Colson, you know, right here while he's, you know, with one hand in the file box or something, right? They just had a field day with him, and they mocked and scorned his conversion. But <clears throat> over time, Colson's prison ministry authenticated his faith. He became heavily involved with bringing convicts in prison to Jesus. And he was completely sincere and devoted to it. And over time, it authenticated his faith. And the cynical laughter died down. And people started to really respect him, the people who once were his critics. Because it was a real, genuine faith. And in God's providence, the attacks on his conversion deepened, actually deepened his faith. <clears throat> and the truth is, challenges to your faith are good for your faith. It's good for you, actually. They strengthen and clarify your commitment to Christ when people malign you, when they ridicule. This is why Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are you when people persecute you for what you believe. When they say all manner of evil against you, when they scorn and ridicule you, blessed are you because you're beloved of your Father. And so... Attacks on your faith are actually good for your faith. I remember early in my sort of ministry development, in my early 20s, being in, in conversations with people from different faiths or unbelievers who challenged me deeply, and I'd go home and I'd study. One particular Maribel remembers was my Jehovah Witness friend. And we worked together. We were close. We actually had a really good relationship, but he was a dyed-in-the-wool Jehovah Witness and we would get into conversations about the Bible, and I would go home and study, and I'd come back the next day to work, and it really caused me to sort of dig my heels deeply, you know, into the pavement. And one day, I even invited him and one of the elders from his kingdom hall over to my apartment. And boy, I had, I mean, I had, I was ready for him. <laughs> to the point that when they left, I heard the older gentleman say to him, well, he was ready for us. <laughs> Challenges to your faith are good. And they weren't always friendly. Our relationship at one point even suffered over it. You know? And there were thing, ways he would make fun of the faith. And I, I say that, that's just a sort of a, a, low, a low cost, you know, experience in terms of suffering, but there are times when uh, people will ridicule you. They'll malign you, as Peter says, because you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. Boy, that's a phrase, isn't it? Flood of debauchery. You know? Hey, Jordan, you want to come to us this Friday to the club? No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not participate in your flood of debauchery this weekend. <laughs> but they'll malign you. I've said this many times, I think one of the biggest threats to American Christianity uh, or challenges is that in the past there has been no challenge. The sort of easy believism, easy faith, nothing's a big deal, everybody's okay with you doing your thing, it, it sort of removes the meaning and value of it. Someone told me recently about an experiment where they were um, growing trees 
in a simulated environment of Mars. So Mars has like, you know, you know, no gravity or whatever. And uh, again, I'm quoting the second hand from someone who read this, so if you've read the article and my, de my details are off, I apologize, but <clears throat> they, they're growing trees in an environment that simulated Mars, and when they sort of removed the, I don't know, bubble or glass shield around these trees, um, the trees fell over. And one of the reasons was because in an environment like that, there's no wind. And what does wind do to trees? It causes trees and vegetation to strengthen itself through the root system. The roots dig down deep. Like how do those palm trees on those, you know, desert islands, you know, like stay up during those hurricanes? How, right? Those gale force winds. Well, they're used to the resistance of the wind. They grow up in that environment. And they're strong and the roots go deep. You don't just pluck a palm tree out of the sand. And that is the way that we are meant to be. The resistance around us is good for you. The opposition is good for your faith. It causes your roots in Christ to grow deep. It causes your strength, the strength of your faith to grow and become powerful, to be able to endure. And so maybe some of us need some more persecution. We need to be maligned. We need some scorn. We need some of those things to test and challenge our faith, to clarify our commitment to Christ so that we can ask of ourselves, do I really believe this? And come out the other side saying, yes, I do. Whatever the cost is, I won't abandon Christ. Whatever the cost may be, because it's true. Because the gospel's true, it's real. And God is real. God will judge the living and the dead, Peter wants us to see, including those who scorn us. So for our part, God uses it as an instrument of his grace to strengthen our faith, but for their part, because their motives come from wicked you know, motivations, God will judge them. And Peter says, don't worry. They'll have to give an account to God. In verse six, he says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit. So God is ready to judge the living and the dead, and those who have died, Christians, Peter is talking about, who seem like they've been judged because they've experienced death, they'll live in the spirit the way God does. Now, the context of this verse is that in the first century, Christians dying was a challenge to explain for the early apostles because Jesus and the apostles were preaching that they would live forever. And so skeptics said, so much for that. They're dead, they're dying. Christians are dying just like everyone else. What's the big deal? And so Peter and Paul and the apostles had to explain that the gospel was preached even to those Christians who are now dead that even though it seems like they've been judged in the flesh, because that's what death is, physical death is a result of the fall, a kind of judgment, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Death should not terrify us. 
that shouldn't paralyze us. And I suspect we think more about death now in the 21st century than people ever have. We're obsessed with death. We're running from it every chance we get, and we get it, right? Praise God for medical advancement and technology, hallelujah. But sometimes we buy into this narrative that the right treatment, the right medicine, we'll just, we'll never die. We just, you know, we just keep seeking out the right, and again, I'm not disparaging treatment, God knows. Got cancer a couple years ago, I sought out the treatment, hallelujah for that. But I say that to say, if you're, if you're afraid of death, you don't need to be. Because the same God who will judge the living and the dead will justify us because the gospel is preached to us. And when we die in our faith, we're dying on the battlefield. We're dying in many ways as soldiers for Christ, as martyrs in some way for Christ. And this is true for the Nigerian martyrs who are dying right now. They are now alive in the spirit the way God is alive in the spirit. And each one of us will be brought back to life at the resurrection. Don't be afraid of death. God holds death in his hand. Death is conquered through the promise of the resurrection of Jesus. And all of those in Christ, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're closer to death or farther away from death, will live on forever in eternal life with Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace given to us in Jesus. Help our hearts to see suffering differently. Help us to value suffering as something you use to conform us to your will, to break our sinful will, and to distinguish us from the world as your people. Let us embrace the suffering that you have purpose for us. Let us also know, O oh God, that you invite us to pray for deliverance and healing, that you call upon us, O oh God, to seek out your power to change circumstances in our lives. But until those things happen, you are at work in our hearts through your spirit. Help us lean into it willingly and rejoice in it, O oh God, for the fellowship that we have with the suffering Savior. In his name we pray, amen.